Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28 and going through verse 31. These are the words of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, last week, we began this journey in our series of Romans uh, in talking about our victory in Jesus. And primarily, we wanted to talk about the assurance we have in that particular victory. Because uh, for somebody to tell you you have victory in Jesus is one thing, but for them to tell you how sure that victory is, to tell you why you have victory in Jesus, I believe goes a long way to living in peace in this life. Amen? So if, if you know that God has said, I have given you victory, and here are all the things that I have done to ensure that victory, uh, you're able to rest. There, there's, a, there's a bit of peace that you can have inside of your life. You have to forgive my sniffles this morning, but uh, so it, that that assurance is amazing. Last week, two pieces of that assurance were this: the general principle that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And if you remember last week's message, uh, the all things that is in view very clearly here in Scripture, the all things refers to the persecutions and the trials that we face for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Um, yes, we're going to face hard times in this life. Yes, we're going we're gonna to go through uh, difficult seasons and difficult situations. But the Apostle Paul does not have in view a stub toe, a refrigerator on the fritz, or Mark's house almost burning down. He, he, although he cares for you, he cares for those things. Um, and he wants to, and he is going to take care of his people. He desires and is willing to take care of his people. What is in view in Romans 8:28 is that God is working all of the mess that first century Christians were enduring for believing in Jesus. He was working it all together for their good. Can you imagine if your friend who professes Jesus uh, was found to profess Jesus and then they killed him? because of his profession of Jesus. Can you imagine the struggle you might begin to have with doubting? You might think, God, where are you at? Right? Aren't we your people? Didn't you say that you would care for us? Didn't you say that you would take care of us? Didn't your word say that you would prosper us? Yes, but not in the 21st century American context. God clearly has told us that he will care for us and he will, he will prosper us. But people were going through uh, heinous persecution in the first century. As a matter of fact, under Nero, uh, humans were, uh, Christians were made to uh, be human torches in certain places in the city where they would put them on a pole and they would light them on fire. So when you see that in your life, there is no doubt in my mind that you would take a step back and say, hold on, God. 
Hold on, I'm struggling here. And God is saying, I'm working all things together for your good. Okay, so that general principle was there last week. And then the second thing that helps us in our assurance of our victory in Jesus is that we have a prayer partner. And guess what? That prayer partner is better than any prayer partner you've ever had. (laughs) It's the spirit of the living God. You have an intercessor in the Spirit of God who is interceding on your behalf. You have an intercessor with the Son who sits at the right hand of the Father, and they are constantly interceding on our behalf. And they're always and only interceding according to the will of God. That, to me, is awesome. That that shows me my victory is a real serious thing. Well, this morning, I want to take us a little bit further because, as you'll notice in verse 28, the Apostle Paul says something that is very powerful. He says, and we know, okay? And knowing is about this assurance, right? Faith is defined in Scripture as the assurance of things hoped for. I like the NASB translation that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But the truth is, when you think about substance and you think about evidence in a court of law, those are the things that allow us assurance in the verdict. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? So substance and evidence allows us assurance in any verdict. And so faith is defined as the substance of our, you know, the substance of our hope or or the evidence of our hope and the substance of our faith. It's all there in what faith is. And so God wants us to know things. He wants us to have assurance. He doesn't, listen, church, God does not want you walking around crossing your fingers and hoping this Christian thing is right. It either is or we might as well get on with life and do something else, right? It is true, and it's not this that makes it true. It's facts, it's truth, it's substance, it's evidence, right? This is assurance. And so this morning, I want to take you through this. I want you to see what the Apostle Paul is actually saying. Now, verse 28 is common to Christians, right? This is, a, this is a passage that we've quoted many times. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've quoted this passage. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, okay? Most of the time, no doubt, somebody has this as a tattoo. Uh, maybe not here, but some Christian somewhere has it as a tattoo, right? A thousand and one Christians probably have it as their life verse, whatever that even means, right? Okay, so they they. they, they know what this means, okay? They know what it says. But all too often when I hear people talk about this verse, two things get dropped off, the very end and the very beginning of this verse, okay? It says that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The first thing I want you to see is the called according to his purpose, Do you see that there are um, conditions, if you will, to uh, this idea that God says he's working all things together? The first condition is that you're a person who loves God. Do you know that this promise is for us as Christians, and it is not a promise or a guarantee for everyone? After all, what would be the point in being a follower of Jesus if, if the promise is just applied anywhere? If, if universal uh, salvation was true and that everybody just goes to heaven and there is no hell, what's the point? I mean, we might as well just ride the wave until the end, okay? Because it's all going to work out in the end. But what God says is that he is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And that last piece is often left off, which is those who are called according to his purpose. Do you know that that implies your obedience? 
Do you know that that implies your obedience? You're called to do according to his purpose. I love this. This makes me so happy. Why? Because I told you he wants you to obey. There. I'm proven. Anyway, so he wants you to obey. He has called you to obey. And there is glorious reason for that, guys. Glorious reason for that is because God's ways are right. God's ways are pure. God's ways are good. And so obedience in him, just as King David said in the Psalms, obedience, uh, the law of God, it's not burdensome. It's not burdensome. Now, the law can be burdensome if you fail to understand that you obey in view of mercy. The law can be a shackle. The law can be a millstone around your neck. It can be heavy and weighty when you, when you try to do it yourself, when you're trying to please God. But it is a joy when you realize that it is the mercy of God who has given you a right way to live, a right way to be. Amen? Okay, so the first half is left off, called according to his purpose. But the second, the second thing that's left off is that opening phrase, and we know. Why don't you say that with me? And we know. Now, I don't think you're saying it like he meant it, okay? Paul meant it like this, and we know, okay? And we know something. Now, what follows that is Oh, it's fascinating to me. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Show of hands, how many of you would say that your life has been characterized by an absolute unwavering knowledge that whatever you're going through, God's causing to work together for your good? Cool, four of you. That's awesome. I want to meet you, I want to talk to you, I want you to pray for me more, right? That's great. But this idea of we know is one of those things in Scripture that you often scratch your head and say, are you, are you sure, Paul? <laughs> are, are, are you sure that we know this particular thing? You want me to give you some proofs of it? Again, the context of God working all things together was what? That God is going to work all of our trials and persecutions and, and struggles together for our good. One of the reasons why I believe as Christians we don't know what Paul wants us to know is first found in our limited desire, limited willingness to go preach the gospel to the rest of the world. How many of you know when you preach the gospel, you kind of look like an idiot to some people? Come on, this is one where everybody's like, yep, somebody has thought of me as an idiot, right? You're going you're gonna to be thought of as an idiot, you're going to be thought of as a looney tune, whatever it is, you're, this is what people are going to think. And guess what? If you knew that God was going to even work that persecution and that criticism for the good of those who love him, what would you do? You'd go out and preach the gospel, wouldn't you? You would be shouting it from the rooftops. But the truth is, we don't know what the Apostle Paul says we know. We wrestle with this. So the first piece is, based on the evidence of our behavior, we don't quite know what Paul is talking about. The second evidence to this idea is, is the, um, I, I would say, is the, uh, he's all right, he's not bothering me, I just want you to know that. I have four. I never hear any. Okay, anyway, I just wanted him to. I don't want him to feel 
uh, that at all. But the first idea, guys, is this persecution, the avoidance of persecution. And the second reason that we, the second observation as to why I don't think we, uh, we know this is because we ask the same questions that the world seems to ask. The world would ask this question. Why do bad things happen to? Yeah, you guys know it. Um, as Christians, I hope we know this. No one is good but the Father. Okay, so that's, a, that's a, actually a, um, a question that's built on a faulty premise right off the bat, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Look at me, I'm awesome. No, this is not the way this is. But I do believe as Christians who have the promises of God and the hope of God and all those things, that we do ask a legitimate question, which is, why do bad things happen to God's people? How many of you have asked that question? Why do bad things happen to God's people? Well, there's a fundamental problem in our understanding right off the bat. We don't realize that God uses all of the persecution that we go through for our shaping and our molding, our crafting, our looking more like Jesus every day. We don't know that. So we shy away from persecution for a couple of reasons. Number one, we don't know that God is going to use it for our good. And number two, we shy away from persecution because it's uncomfortable. Okay? But the truth is that God, according to Scripture, is working in us through our trials, through our pains. He is working in us an eternal weight of glory. He's working that in us. One of the pieces that we fail to see in Romans chapter 8 all the time is Romans chapter 8 verse 17. It says, and if children, which we are, right? We're children of God. Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But look at the next line, church. Listen to me very clearly. If indeed we suffer with him, And now keep following it, so that we may be glorified with him. If we suffer, we will be glorified with him. I need you to connect the if then, if this, then this statements in scripture. If we suffer with Jesus, we will be glorified. That's what he says. It also says that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If we are loving God and we are called according to his purpose, then he is working it out. If we are suffering, taking up our cross daily, it's not like God is some sort of strange uh, cosmic masochist, okay? He's, he's not wanting you to suffer just for ha laughs or anything like this. He is saying that if you will take up your cross, he is going to produce in you this eternal weight of glory. Is that profound? So the reason why we shy away from this is because it's uncomfortable. We don't know what God is bringing about inside of our lives through it. And we don't know what Paul says we know. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, it's my hope as a pastor that you would understand that we would all begin to understand what it means to fellowship in Christ's suffering. And not only what that means, but what that produces. Suffering leads to glorification. I also want you to see that that has always been God's plan for us. He wants us to be, Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. He wants us to be the many brethren. He wants us to be his children and his people. I shared with you last week that our our freedom from sin 
is a freedom from our captivity. It was our personal exodus. And our exodus now in this human life before Jesus returns is a journey through the wilderness. How many of you have read the story of the exodus? How many of you know that the journey through the wilderness was not fun? How many of you know it was primarily based on human stubbornness? How many of you know your wilderness is primarily based on, oh, anyway, okay. So the, the, the reality is we're in the wilderness. We're journeying through this, okay? But God is working something in us. And that is an important concept for all of us to understand. So Paul says this right off the bat. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The word know, though, is important. I'm going to answer the question, how is it that we can know this, this, uh, this assurance? How can we know this today? I want to answer that question for you today. And I want to give you a couple of insights into a situation that I believe is happening inside the current church, the, the big C church, the climate of the church today. First things first is the word no. It's actually pronounced, it's a Greek word that's pronounced yudda. Will you say that with me? Yudda. Come on, say it with me. Yudda. Yudda. See the word, uh, the letter delta, we've, we've anglicized these letters in, uh, in Greek, but the word delta is not pronounced delta. If you, if you used it in uh, in Koine Greek, it would be pronounced Velta, right? That's how it's pronounced. But anyway, so, so the word Velta is there, and so it's Uda, Uda. And I love watching you say that. So say it one more time with me. Uda, Uda. You guys just look awesome. Okay, so anyway, so the word Uda. But here's the interesting thing. When you say words like no in the English language, you go, oh, it means no. Cool, enough said, let's move on. Ah, here's where context matters. Here's where context matters. Because context is more than just uh, people, places, and things. Context is more than just how a word fits within a sentence. Context is more than just how a sentence fits within a paragraph or a paragraph within a body of work. Context also has to do with how a particular audience thought, how they heard things, the language they used, and what original meanings looked like. This is why it's really dangerous for us to just add whatever meaning we want to to the text of Scripture. And I'm going to give you two really profound instances of this today. The first is this udda. The word doesn't just mean to know, like mental assent to some idea. The word udda means knowledge based on observable past. Knowledge based on observable past, which means that the word, if it's transliterated properly, if it's communicated with its meaning in the text, would actually say this, and based on what we've observed, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do you know what the significance is? The significance is history, the scriptures, the songs we sing for worship, the testimonies we give of God's mighty hand moving matter. The reason why the Romans knew what we all admitted or many of us admitted we don't know, the reason why, what, why they knew what they knew is because they had observed the truth of who God is and was in the past. 
very profound. The answer to the question of how can we know that we know that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose is based on history. It's based on understanding this. There's no doubt that the Apostle Paul has in his mind as he's saying this what the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. He gives this giant list of the great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, if you will. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, this is our great cloud of witnesses. What were they cloud of witnesses to? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God, the God who made a promise and always kept it. Now, yes, Hebrews 11 tells us that some of these went to their death without having received particular promises. And they all went to their death without having received the ultimate promise, the seed of Abraham, which was Jesus himself. They went to their grave not receiving these promises. However, they still went to their grave looking forward to that beautiful truth. I've said it many times in the past, the Old Testament followers were saved by faith looking forward to a Messiah, and we are saved by looking forward to a coming again Messiah. We are looking by faith to the one who died on a cross, the one who was buried and three days later rose from the grave, okay? So we're looking to this. Those people knew this. The Apostle Paul says, guess what, Rome? We know. How do we know, Paul? Let's bust out Hebrews, if it was written at the time. But let's bust out the stories. Let's look at the scroll of Isaiah. Let's look at the Old Testament. Remember, they had these scriptures that they went by. And they remembered the faithfulness of God all the days of their life. The way that you and I can know that God will work all things together for our good is not simply crossing our fingers and hoping that's true. The way we can know it is real faith, substance and evidence. What is that substance? What is that evidence? The past. What has God done? Oh my goodness, we don't have time to talk about all that God has done today. But that's what we're supposed to do. Now, to a modern problem. The modern problem is a problem that I see in worship. And I just want to talk to you about it ever so briefly. Yeah, right. Okay, so I want to talk to you about it anyway. So it might be brief, it might not be brief. There are two main thoughts or camps inside of the worship community today. There is the camp that, uh, that consists of what we would call modern or popular Christian music, Christian worship, okay? This is... Uh, this is um, seen in the likes of Hillsong or Jesus Culture or uh, Elevation Worship or Chris Tomlin fits into this, okay? And this is what you hear on the radio all the time, right? You guys know this. Okay, so these, these guys have some really amazing songs, okay? They have some really great songs. Then there's another camp, which is, um, which is marked by artists like Shane and Shane, uh, Keith and Christine Getty, uh, Sovereign Grace, all kinds of, uh, of other writers. And these people are often referred to as modern-day hymn writers, okay? They're often referred to. Stuart Townen is one. He wrote the song In Christ Alone. It's just a powerful song, right? So, so we have these modern-day hymn writers. There's a war that goes on. You may not know this. You may be like, wow, imagine that. More Christian fighting about stuff. But anyway, so there's, there's a war going on between these two camps a lot of times. And the one says, the, this side says, we need to sing about the faithfulness of God. We need to sing about what God is doing. 
And this side says uh, we need to have a relationship with him. We need to encounter him. We need to experience more of his presence. We actually just sang that, right? We want to encounter more of his presence. Here's the truth. We need both of them. We need both of them. And I'm not playing a game here to curry favor because believe it or not, I know this is going to be offensive, I don't care what people think of this, right? I believe we need both of them for a very profound reason. I believe we need both of them for the message that I'm delivering today, which is where this camp is stronger than this camp. And I believe that we need both of them because God is a God of our emotions and our encounters and, and, and he is a God of presence. Do you know that? Do you know that? Here's, here's the thing that happens. Everybody's arguing with each other. And the downfall, what people do, what people say is those people aren't concerned about truth. And these, this people says this group of people never wants to experience anything. They just want to talk about head knowledge and theology all the time. And that is a mischaracterization and a broad brushstroke painted on both sides, okay? It's just, it's just downright goofy. Here's what I think needs to happen for both of them. I think this side needs to speak of the truths of God and his faithfulness, and then they need to give people the opportunity to respond, right? You say, hey, God brought us through the Red Sea. God has done this and this and this. Let us worship him. And then we get to sing hallelujah you know, for 400 choruses or something like that, right? Right? So we sing hallelujah. This side needs to develop a stronger understanding of theology. They do. It's a simple observation. Uh, we can say things like this, I sing praises to your name, O God. I sing praises to your name. And while I'm singing that, as a Christian, as a pastor who knows these words and particularly loves that song that I just quoted. Uh, although that is true, I know why I'm singing praises to God. But most people or a new Christian is walking in and saying, that's true. We should sing praises to God. That's true. But I don't know why yet. I don't know why yet. Okay? Inspired by Romans 8, Charles Wesley wrote this hymn. And this is an example of it. I want to give you this example and then Psalm 136, and then I'll get back to what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate today. Here's what he says, uh, Charles Wesley. And can I be, and can it be, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He's saying, can it be that I gain a place, interest, buy-in to this, Right? Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That verse is amazing. Modern writers have taken that refrain and said, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? And they've sung it a thousand times over. And it's true. It's amazing to be in awe of his dying for you. But the rest of this song actually communicates what he did and why all is the natural response. Tis mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. 
Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Guess what? You want to sing praises to God? It's really easy when you understand that his mercy found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bond in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You want to sing praises to God? Just set those words before people. Trust me. It will change people's hearts. See, we need both forms of worship because one cares deeply for the presence of God. But oftentimes what has happened on this side is we become a good old boys club. We've all experienced the presence of God. We've all experienced the goodness of who he is. And so we sing these refrains endlessly. We rejoice in who he is. However, the person who walks in that is an infant or a babe in Christ, a young or a non-believer walks in and they say, I know you're saying that, but I don't know why. I don't know why. And this side sings extremely deep, profound theological things, but oftentimes misses those great opportunities that says, guys, can we weep before our king right now? Can we fall before him in adoration? Can we be more undignified? Right? This is David's heart. Psalm 136, it's an amazing thing. One of the critiques of this camp in modern church is that they're too repetitive. How many of you have ever heard it? How many of you have made that criticism? I have, right? It's too repetitive. Have you ever read Psalm 136? There's 26 verses, and in 26 verses, uh, David says the same line 26 times, okay? He says, and God's loving kindness endures forever, and God's loving kindness endures forever, and God's loving kindness endures forever, and I want to hit pause on the repeat there for a little while, right? But here's what David gets that this camp needs to understand. Every line of the 26 lines that says God's love endures forever starts with a line of truth of what God did. He destroyed the king of Bashan. Your love endures forever. How many of you know that God's justice is part of his love enduring forever for us? That's part of what we sing, church. That's why we sing these profound things, and we need to sing them all the more, okay? So it's really important that we understand this. So enough of my hobby horse on worship, but I want you to see, church, that the reason why we don't know what the Apostle Paul says that the Romans knew is because we've forgotten the past. These songs about praising and worshiping God are wonderful things. But before too long, those songs will not inform us any longer of why we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And before too long, we might sing a lot of religious things, but if we're not careful, we will be a people who worship God in vain. We say a lot of flowery things, but our hearts are nowhere near him. If we bring this together, if we bring those two camps together, it's beauty beyond compare, church. 
It's just beauty beyond compare. So there's more that is spoken of in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to go through this as quick as I can possibly do it. Here's the more. For God, uh, for we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. First, notice that Paul says God causes all things to work together for good. God does not assert that God meticulously determines all things full stop. That's not what the Bible says. It never has said it. God causes all things to work together for good, but God does not cause all things. It would be a mistake to read it that way. He clearly allows certain things that happen inside of our life, but he doesn't cause them. Sin would be a perfect example. Instead, Paul clearly said, God is causing it for our good. God is causing it to work together, not causing it, but causing it to work together for our particular good. That is to say that even if the enemy or we attempt to throw a wrench in God's plan, his His will, his plan will endure. He will work it out. And the best story for this is the story of Joseph. God gives Joseph a dream. Joseph is going to be leader. His brothers are going to bow down before him. His brothers get a little miffed at this. I can understand why. Maybe a little jealousy creeps in there. So what do they do? They do what any good brother does. They sell him into slavery. So they ship him off, ship him off to slavery. He lands in Egypt in Potiphar's house. He's mistreated in Potiphar's house, even though he's a faithful person. He's, he's shipped into prison. Finally, God's favor uh, comes about. He even says, Joseph says at the end of this great and majestic story in which man does some wicked, stupid things to this boy, he says what you intended for evil, God has worked for good. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Second, it says that these things work together for good. For good. But make sure you understand it. This is God's good, not our good. God is going to prosper you. Can you say that with me? God is going to prosper me, but not in an American context. Smile. Not in the 21st century American mindset. God has not promised you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. He has not promised that. What he has promised is that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised that he is working it all together for your good. He has promised that he is your protection. He is your assurance. He is your strong tower. Amen? So we see this beautiful good that is spoken of. This good is defined, the term here is actually defined by the term excellence. God is working all things together for your excellence. This term is actually akin to the term for your perfection or completeness. How many of you know that when we see Jesus, we will be fully transformed? You won't lack a thing because that's been God's goal the whole time to bring you to a place of completeness. Third, there's a qualification for these truths, too, to be exact, and I've already uh, alluded to them. The first one is love God, uh, those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes. Last week, we defined calling as those who, by the grace of God, have heard the gospel because that is who the called are. These have been called according to his purpose, which is multifaceted. Paul is saying that to be called according to his purpose is to suffer for his namesake. Smile. 
That was on the sign-up sheet, whether you saw it or not, right? We will suffer for Christ. Um, Jesus promised that Paul would suffer for him, and then he promised it to all of us. What a powerful reality. Some are called to be pastors and teachers, evangelists, etc., but all are called to good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. So we have been called according to his purpose, but what of this those who loved God? Well, it's clear that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Barney alluded to this yet again in our morning time. When Peter is asked by Jesus, do you love me three times, Jesus indicates that love in return is action which is to feed and to tend to his sheep. He wants us to shepherd his people. That's what he's called us to. But something important to note here is that what is what happens to those who love God. This will lead us into verse 29. First, what happens to us is true of those who love God, right? Romans says that that they have a promise that God will work all things together. Just take it to the bank. It's true, right? But 1 Corinthians 8.3 says something exciting. It says, the man who loves God is known by God. You should write it down. It's a wonderful note for your, for your study. The man who loves God is known by God. Make no mistake, God first loved us, but our love, is, our love for him is said in Corinthians to be that identifying factor of how God knows us. Those who love and are therefore known by God are they that own the promises of God. The faithfulness of Israel, Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, etc. All of these things, all the way up to Anna and Simeon in the gospel accounts. Mind you, they were faithful till the end. Okay, They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. These people who loved God were known by God. Now, turn to verse 29. Turn to verse 29. This is going to get me in some trouble, but it's okay. Verse 29, here's what it says. Oh, I'm on the wrong page. Okay, verse 29, here we go. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. For those whom he foreknew. This has been interpreted uh, by many for many years, okay, many years, to be understood as a theological concept of God knowing something before it happened, foreknowledge, a prediction of sorts, okay? That's what many scholars, many scholars would read this to say. The problem is, the problem is it doesn't mean that. The problem is the word is pronounced prognosco, it is, pronounced, it is used four times in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament, and every time it is used, guess what it refers to? It refers to a former knowledge of a thing or a people group. It does not mean before the foundation of the world, I knew who would accept me or I knew who I chose. That's not what the term means. The term means I knew you from old. Guess what? It's the same thing as me saying to Barney, man, I knew you 10 years ago. 
I knew you back in the day. I knew you in this particular situation. With that understanding in mind, it's interesting that the, the, the interpretation of the passage of Scripture completely changes. So what has Paul told us so far? He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And that know means, based on former knowledge, based on a former, uh, a former understanding, based on observable past events, we know that God is faithful. What are those past events? The very people that the Bible says he foreknew. Who is it talking about? It's talking about Israel. And it can be challenged. It can be, you can spend hours and hours fighting over this, but the words mean what the words mean, which means that the Apostle Paul has said in this context, listen, here's how sure you are that God is going to work all things together for, for your good. Those whom God foreknew, Israel, God predestined. What did he predestine them for? Doesn't say salvation here. He predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son. Why? Because scripture tells us very clearly that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And Jesus came to the Jews. He is the Jewish Messiah. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. How are we called, church? How are we called? We are called by the gospel, aren't we? That's who Jesus went to with the gospel, isn't it? Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Now, here's an important theological point. Either we are justified the way Paul says we're justified, by grace through faith, or Romans 5.1, that we are justified by faith, which is what he says, in the Messiah, or what Paul introduces here is two ways of justification. One is by faith, and the other one is by some sort of sovereign decree long ago before it ever took place. It's not what is said. Those whom he foreknew, Israel, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he called through the gospel, because that's the way we're all called. Those whom he called, he justified, and they are justified just like you, by grace, through faith. If they don't put their faith in Jesus, they die. By faith, they are justified, and those whom he justifies, what does Scripture say? He glorifies. What is his plan? Future glorification. The Apostle Paul has just said to all of us, he has said, listen, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know it. It's based on past events. As a matter of fact, let, give me, let me give you an example of one. Those whom he foreknew... The Jews, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say then? Well, if God is for us, who in the world can be against us? If he's not against them, if he has brought them through, why would it change for us? It's called context. And it's called understanding the words on the page. You notice that every one of those words, predestined, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified are all in the past tense. They're all in the past tense because he's talking about those whom he knew before. What is the beautiful truth for you and for me? 
if we will heed that call, if we will put our faith in him, if we will accept his justification and we will listen and obey and trust him for our glorification, what in the world do you think can separate us from the love of God? Isn't that amazing? Now, theologians over time past have said the reason why it speaks of things in the past tense, especially glorified, how many of you know we're not glorified yet? Yeah, we've spent three weeks talking about the fact that future glorification is what we're looking to. And theologians have said the reason it says glorified in the past tense is because this thing is so true, it's as good as done. That is stretching it. You are forcing the text to say something that it simply doesn't say. And then when you look at the broader context, you realize that the Apostle Paul has said, oh, by the way, by the way, that thing that you knew from the past, those people that God has been faithful to, that he has brought through, remember Anna and remember Simeon, remember John the Baptist, faithful Jews to the end. They've died. They're glorified. Life is good for them. Remember that? If God is for you, well, then who in the world can be against you? Ain't nobody can be against you, right? What's amazing, though, church, as we wrap up, is we can't know that unless we know of the people he foreknew. We can't know that unless we read those stories. We can't know that unless our songs, our worship songs, are so rich with the truth of God. We can't know it. And so we look at Paul's words and we go, I, I, well, Paul said he'll work all things for my good, but I'm not really sure. How many of you are tired of li living in the in-between? I don't know if God will, but I hope he will. How many of you want to live in the we know category? How many? Come on. Like, I need, I need some, you know, stuff. I need some participation. We want to know this, don't we? Well, guess how you know? Read your Bible. Ha, guess what? I was right again. Anyway, read your Bible. Guess what? Sing good worship songs. I was right again. It's amazing, right? Listen to good teachers. Study. See what God has done, right? And then the last piece that I really wish we would recapture. And I'm going to challenge you to this. And I'm going to challenge you to email. I'm going to challenge you to shoot your own video and send it to me, whatever it is. But I'm going to challenge you yet again. I have over years and years and years challenged to this. I am encouraging you to write out your testimony. Please tell the church of what God has done in your life through your salvation and through your sanctification. Please tell the church what God has done. You know why it's important? Because it helps us know. It helps us know. Do you know what the Old Testament is? A giant testimony of God's faithfulness. You know what your testimony is? A giant testimony of God's faithfulness. Isn't that important? So this is what we need. This is what we need. Adam, come on up. If the communion teams would get ready. I want to I end you with this. This idea that we, are, um, that we are God's people. I'll just push this back. That, that we are God's people is sure. This idea that God is going to cause all things to work together for our good is sure. It is true. Why is it sure and why is it true? Because God has done it in the past and he will do it again. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.